Ephesians chapter 4. This is a third in a series called The Gifts in the Body. And we are laying some groundwork for what it is to get into the spiritual gifts of which the Spirit has blessed the body of Christ. In our first study, we saw that it's because of Israel's rejection of their Messiah that the Lord has poured over onto a brand new people. And it's not that he's taken Israel and he's reformed them. It's not that he has made Gentiles part of national Israel. It's the idea that he's got something completely brand new that he's doing. In fact, he calls it the one new man in Ephesians 2. Paul does. And it's not the idea that we're just kind of shaving off a little here and there. We're just kind of molding here and there. It's the idea that something awesome needs to take place, if for no other reason, to show the Jewish people that they missed out on an abundance of privilege that they have poured towards them. God makes no apologies for that. When God tries working with somebody over and over and over again, and they are consistently denying him, he has no problem setting them aside to their own devices in order to work with someone else to get his will accomplished. Now, that's not mean. That's called discipline. Our 21st century mindset has made discipline a dirty word. It is not. Now, why I didn't get an amen on that, I don't understand, fathers. But it's not. Because when you don't... <laughs> Suck up. <sighs> because when you don't discipline your children, what happens? They're unruly. Out of hand, they take over. It's a mutiny. And you find that any sense of authority has been thrown out the window. Is that God's design? No. So to not discipline would be in the realm of sin. That's another sermon. God is consistent. And so he sets Israel aside. And he said, the kingdom has been taken from you. And it's given to a nation that are going to produce its fruits. They are going to actually show forth some elements of what it's going to be like when Christ rules and reigns on the earth. In our second study, we moved to Ephesians chapter 2, and we found out that Gentiles, that's everybody who's not a Jew, has actually got an incredible privilege in the realm of grace. And what that is, is we didn't have any type of hope. We didn't belong in any way to God. We had no previous revelation of a way that he'd worked with us. And the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross has all of a sudden put us in a DeLorean at 88 miles an hour and has brought us into a front standing with God alongside the Jews, not to make us Jews, but to turn us into one brand new entity that he's going to desire to use to not just tell the world about himself, but to demonstrate what the work of the Spirit looks like. Now, praise God that Zach and his family are not here because I got some spit going on this morning. It's like a Gallagher show up here. My poor wife, I love you. If you move, I totally understand. It's good. He's desiring to do one brand new thing. Sometimes my greatest concern is that we've become so accustomed to going to church and to doing church 
that it's lost its significance that the Bible's given it, that Jesus died to provide what God's trying to accomplish through it, and it's become more about the inner workings of a social club rather than it's become about this dynamic force of which the Spirit manifests Himself in order to evangelize and disciple people. We have a lot more going on than what we think. We often act like church is a butter knife that we're using to clean out our nails. No, we're a switch knife or switchblade that's taking fools down. I don't make any apologies for that. The church is a much more dangerous entity in the realm of the world than what we would have. So the world is doing everything it can to arrest us, to tear us down, to keep us quiet, to keep us calm, to keep us docile, to keep us medicated, to keep us dumb. And God desires so much more and Jesus died for so much more because the church is glorious. If for no other reason that Jesus died to save her. That's you. That's me. So we're starting right now in Ephesians 4. And it's weird that we're starting in the middle of the book, and so we're going to try to make up some ground in this time, and we'll see what time allows, but I'm not going to preach long. Hey, man, there's long johns and apple fritters. I'm not preaching long. (laughs) You've learned the key today. There you go. But when we begin this, what's the first thing you see? Therefore, and because we're good Bible students, what do we do? What is therefore, therefore? Now, if you're familiar with Paul's writings, Paul seems to have a formula that he always wants to unfold for the people that he's writing to. He wants to give us precious truths of which to think upon before he gives us actions that should result out of our pondering and meditation on those precious truths. I like to call it the already blessings that we have in Christ. And the reason is, is because Christ is the one who did all the work to secure them. They're freely given to us. That's why it's by grace. And they are all available to us without any requirement on ourselves in order to gain them. They're ours. Our problem is, is we often fail to access them either because of ignorance of what the Scriptures tell us is the reality, or number two, because we refuse to submit ourselves to God's greater way. Somehow we think by paving our own road with gravel and sand, we're going to get further than God's solid foundation of concrete that will get us there in a heartbeat. That's a mistake. Now in my spare time, I've been working on a little project. And it is the already blessings that we have in Christ in all of Paul's books. So far, I've got five of them done. But this week, I recognized, oh, I'm just going to pull the file on Ephesians, and that way we can just use it. And I recognized I had not done Ephesians. And so I had the opportunity to do that. If you open up your handout, you will see that you've got a piece of paper in here. And I want to show you something very interesting about this, because if you notice, you'll look front and back, I stopped at chapter 3, verse 20. I went ahead and did the whole book. There are 110 realities for the believer in Christ in the six chapters of Ephesians. It's incredible. But what's interesting, when you get to chapter 4, in verse 1, it shifts to things that we are now able to do because we are in Christ. Previously, we were not. But now that we're in Christ, these are abilities that we have. I did not include those on here. I just wanted to show you everything up to the therefore. And there are 52 truths that the believer now has at their disposal, not because of anything that we've done, 
but because when you believe in Jesus Christ, He puts you into this astounding station of a righteous position in God's sight. His blood covers you. God now sees you through Jesus-colored glasses. And now all of the gifts that he has and all that is true of himself, he now turns around and he blesses on you and I. What is true of him is true of you. We are hidden in him in God. These are all incredible truths we rarely ever think about. These are what are known as identification truths. Some of you might be familiar with the term positional truth. So when you look at the idea of Ephesians, you see that chapters 1, 2, and 3 deal with positional truth. And chapters 4, 5, and 6 deal with the idea of practical truth. Now that this is true, now I understand what has already happened to me in my position because of all that Jesus has done. Nothing of myself. How can I now respond by living in that life that he died to give me? Does that make sense? Yes? There's too many people here to be asleep. You waiting for donuts? Maybe we should have passed them out before him. Sugar it up. Let's go through this real quick and just take a look at it. Dave, we've already got these on a slide there. The believer's already blessings in Christ. This is already true of you, and guess what? God wants you to believe it. If you don't, you are not thinking biblically, because this is how God sees you, and this is what God did for you. Number one, we are saints. That means holy ones, set-apart ones. Number two, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. You know what that means? Spiritually speaking, you lack nothing. How many times do we spend the time praying, oh God, just give me this. Oh God, just help me through this. Oh God, well, I just really need this. And you actually find out that the things we're praying for are the things that we already have. It's because we remain ignorant to the scriptures of what they say, or it's just too good to be true, and therefore we're not going to believe it. The things that are too good to be true in Christ, that's called grace. Grace is always too good to be true. But it always is true because of him, not us. That's the beautiful reality of it. We are not lacking anything, spiritually speaking. Number three, we are chosen in Christ. Number four, we've been chosen to be, what have we been chosen for? To be holy and blameless before him in love. We're going to look at a little bit of that today, time allowing. Number five, we're predestined to the adoption of sons. In other words, it's already set up, and our adoption as sons and daughters of God is a future event. It's also called glorification. Number six, we're predestined according to the kind intention of his will. It just makes God happy to do that for us. Is that a good thing? Why are you asleep this morning? These are great things. These are wonderful things. These are beautiful things. These are things that when we saw last week, we were far away, not in the realm, not privy to those blessings. That's a destitute position. Now we are the richest people in the world. Number eight, we are recipients of his freely bestowed grace. Number nine, we are redeemed through his blood. We've been bought back, and that's the price that was paid. Number 10, we're forgiven of our trespasses. Yes, all of them. When you leave in sin today, that sounds hopeful, doesn't it? When you leave in sin today, you're already forgiven. Already. Now, how many of us sit there and go, you know what, I could really abuse that. That's great. Is that our response? 
Or is our response to God's grace, wow, why do you love me so much? I'll be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know why he loves me so much. But he does. And it's because it's him, not me. It's rooted in him and who he is. Grace comes towards us because it is who God is, not because we're deserving of it. If it had anything to do with what you deserve, God would not be gracious. So thankfully, it's his character, not my condition, that makes him want to be gracious. It says here, 11, we are forgiven according to the riches of his grace. You know what that is? That's a measurement term. I go through our cabinet sometime, I'm looking. I, I bought one of the most beautiful things at uh, Farm and Fleet, and it is the two-tablespoon uh, coffee, uh, coffee scoop. Every time I know, man, there's two tablespoons right there. I got it down to a science today. My coffee's tasting so good, right? And I'm like, this thing is gold. I'll get it in the dishwasher. I'm like digging it out, washing it off, whatever. I don't care what it's got on. I'm still using it, right? It's beautiful, beautiful. How do you measure God's grace? How do you measure it? You can't. But does that change the fact that it's there? And is it there in abundance? You know what I picture? I picture... I don't know if I want to share this example. I do. Okay, this is terrible. This is terrible, but if you have Amazon, you can check it out. There's a movie back in the early 80s that if you know who Weird Al Yankovic is that he did, called UHF. How many people have seen this movie? Okay. Great. This is a wonderful example because only three of you know what in the world I'm talking about. <laughs> Essentially, this guy who nothing's worked out for him in life inherits a small little UHF station, and he begins broadcasting his ideas and original shows out of it, and it catches on with people, and it creates wildfire. And he's got this guy that's running this kid's show. And he's got this one segment where the kids are looking for the marble in the oatmeal. And all these people are just covered in oatmeal. They're looking for it. They're looking for it. And he says, oh, Timmy, you found the, the, the marble in the oatmeal. And he sets him on this little saddle and he drags him over here and he goes, you get to drink from the fire hose. And the kid's like, yeah. And it's this fire truck fire hose that's set up in front of this kid. And he's like, open wide. And the kid's like, ah. And he lets this thing go and the kid's like, gone. I mean, just blasted him right off that thing. That's what I think of when I think of God's grace. Because of what Jesus has done, we all get to drink of the fire hose. All the time. Every time. Always. Anytime that we want it. Anytime that we don't put something of ourselves up to block it. It's there. It's freely running all the time. A lot of times we just need to get out of the way so that we can experience it. Notice it's there. Forgiven according to the riches of His grace. Number 12, His grace has been lavished on us. When's the last time you were, ladies, when's the last time you were lavished with something? Uh, never, right? Father's Day just got real awkward. <laughs> but it's nice, isn't it? To think about that I'm lavished in grace. Good grief, what an incredible thought. We ever thought about that before? Completely overcome with it? Completely immersed, drowning in it? 13, in the kind intention of God's will to give us wisdom and insight, he wants us to be smart for his glory, into the dispensation of the fullness of times. That means what's going on right now in this time period in history. 
in which all things will culminate in Christ Jesus. It's all leading somewhere. You know what that is? I know it's a lot of words. You can write next to it, hope. God's given us wisdom to have a future hope. That means when you feel like giving up now, there's always something greater out ahead that encourages us to keep going through the hard times. He's already given you every incentive for hope. Verse 14, we've obtained an inheritance that was predestined for us, every one of us. Every one of us has boundless riches coming to us automatically for no other reason except for the fact that you're in Christ. It's just what he wants to give you. You say, why does God want to do it? What does God want in exchange for this? You know, that's the amazing thing about grace. He doesn't ask anything for exchange because if he did, it would be a transaction and grace would no longer be grace. You would now have earned his love, his lavishness, his affection, all these things. You can't earn it. He just gives it freely. How about the next one? We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Number 16, we are God's possession awaiting future redemption. Verse 17, we have the capacity to love all the saints. You believe that? Come on now. I like how three people said yes. We have the capacity now to love all the saints, every one of them. Verse 18, we have access to greater wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Number 19, we've been enlightened that we may know the hope of his calling. Number 20, we've been enlightened that we may know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in believers. Do you recognize that even though he's got an inheritance to give to all of us, God's inheritance is us? God's going to inherit me? Come on, man. That's putting the quarter in the little machine and turning the dial and nothing pops out. Let's be honest. God's desire is for the day when he fully inherits us. How did we get so special? Isn't that his grace? Man, it's better than barbecue. Verse 21, enlightened to know the surpassing greatness of his power towards us. Do you realize that because we have the Holy Spirit, we can now know the surpassing greatness of his power toward us? 22, we've received God's rich mercy. 23, we are greatly loved by God. 24, we're made alive together with Christ by God when he raised. We were raised with him. How about 25? Raised up with, sorry, raised up with Christ by God. 26, seated with Christ in the heavenlies by God. Do you realize, spiritually speaking, you are already seated alongside Jesus Christ in the heavenly places? Already. You already have a seat there. It's already reserved. That's where you are, location-wise, in God's sight. Already there. Which makes the whole idea that you can lose your salvation insane. God would have to do undo a lot in the cross in order for us to lose our salvation. It's impossible. It says here, verse 27, we are examples of the surpassing riches of God's grace in kindness. In other words, we're objects that reflect His grace because we are people that should not be graced, that He freely chooses to grace. Everybody see that? So people look at us and like, what is going on? Do you realize it says that angels long to look at what's going on with us? What's going on with those people? They're terrible. What's God doing? Things you can't understand, even though you're an angel. That's incredible. It's grace. That's what it is. Number 28, we're saved by grace. Turn it over. 29, stuff we covered last week. 
were God's workmanship, his poem, his masterpiece, created in Christ. 30, were created in Christ for good works. He's prepared them beforehand. 31, were brought near by the blood. 32, were possessing the person of peace, Jesus Christ. 33, were unified and at peace with believing Jews in one new man. 34, you are free from the law. You don't have to do anything to be saved. What bearing does the law have on the Christian? Calm down, legalists. None. Jesus died for it. And when he died, he nailed the law to the cross. The cross is the great altar where no one needed to die anymore. His blood is sufficient. Done. We no longer have to worry about it. 35, we are reconciled to God through the cross. 36, we have access to God through one spirit. 37, we're fellow citizens. 38, of God's household, his his greater plan of what he's doing. Verse 39, growing into a holy of holies unto the Lord. If you remember, we talked about that last week. Number 40, built together into a dwelling place for God's spirit, and then territory that we haven't covered. 41, able to know the mystery revealed to the apostles and prophets. We're able to know about his whole plan that was previously kept hidden in the Old Testament about bringing the church together by making Gentiles fellow recipients of the grace of God. It says here, 42, we're fellow heirs of the body. 43, we're fellow members of the body. 44, we're fellow partakers of the promise. 45, revealers of the manifold wisdom of God to spiritual forces in the heavenly places. You say, what in the world does that mean? It means that there's going to come a time when fallen angels, demons, principalities, and powers, that's what they're known of in Scripture, God is going to use us as objects of His grace to demonstrate to them what the surpassing greatness is of knowing Him and being in relationship with Him. He's going to use us to prove His point. We are going to be on the witness stand to testify to the supernatural world, God is good and gracious and holy and full of love. And because you followed that fool in the deviled ham uniform, we can't help you. That's not funny? Okay. Moving on. 46. Boldness and confident access to the body. It's your right to be there. It's your right because God gave it to you. How about 47? Strengthened with power in the inner man by his spirit. 48, we have greater fellowship where Christ will settle in our hearts. 49, we are rooted and grounded in love. 50, we have greater fellowship enabling us to comprehend the multifaceted love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That's a very, in fact, let's do this real quick. Look back at three so you can see this. I don't even have this up on the board. And I want you to look at verses 17, 18, and 19 because this is an incredible thought. In verse 14, Paul decides that he's going to pray based on everything that he's seen for these people. And he's praying for the church. And in verse 17, look what he says. So that Christ may dwell, set up shop in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend. In other words, we will mentally be able to sort through it and get it. All with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses what? Do you realize what he just told you? He's now praying that you and I are going to be able to comprehend something about the love of God that is so vast and expansive 
that it surpasses knowing, and yet we get to know it. Everybody see that? You can't know this. But guess what? I'm praying to God that you can know this. This is otherwise unknowable love. We get, we get to know it. We get to know it. You say, well, I don't feel like I know the love of Christ. Well, this is what he says about us. Why is it not true to you? Why does it not resonate with you? Well, you don't know all the bad things I've done in my life. God does. Guess what? These are still already true. All of our sins were future. While we were sinners, the love of God is demonstrated in that Christ still died for us. If that doesn't create humility in heart, I don't know what does. Because I sit here and I look around, I was like, man, I don't deserve anything. And what's God telling me? You have everything. You have everything. You have everything. All things are yours in Christ. Grace blows minds. 51. We have greater fellowship to be filled up with God's fullness. 52. His power works within us. If you're ever looking for a good little series that would go along with Ephesians, Theodore Epp, E-P-P, has written a little three-volume thing about abundant living, about Ephesians. He says this, We let, not make, our light shine as we appropriate our wealth in Christ described in Ephesians 1-3 through in our daily living. It's not that we're making anything happen. It's the fact that it's already all there and we're just getting the cover off of it so that the light can shine freely. It's already ours. So when you go back and you see, therefore, that's what this is talking about. Because the incredible abundance of riches in His grace, therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Notice that Paul draws attention to himself. Number one, he wrote this while he's on house arrest. Notice he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome. That has nothing to do with it. He's saying, even though I've got shackles around me, and even though I can't leave my dwelling place, I am where I am because this is where Jesus wants me. Now you talk about positive attitude. I don't know that I could do that. But he understands that everything that he has in Christ, he lacks nothing. Therefore, his current circumstance has no bearing on the truths that are already there for him. Gosh, we could stand to have our brains washed with that. We could stand to have our minds changed with that truth. He says here, prisoner of the Lord. Everybody see the next word, implore? Everybody remember we looked at Romans 12.1? I urge you, I beseech you. It's borderline command. It's borderline heart-wrenching, please go this way. It's because Paul is speaking to them like a father. When you know that there is a way that your child needs to go, but you don't want to make the decision for them because you know it won't get rooted in as well as it needs to be, but you are begging them, please, choose this direction with all the privilege and resources that you have. Go in this way. He says, I implore you to walk. It's how we conduct ourselves. In a manner, what's it say? Worthy. 
of the calling with which you have been called. What is the calling? The calling is the 52 things we just read through. That's the calling. Schaefer put it this way, our heavenly position through infinite grace is our calling. Because of all the abundance that we've been given, we're told to walk worthy. Do we know what that means? Interesting point about this. I have a quote from a guy that's a Greek grammarian. His name is Linsky. I want to throw it up on the screen and show it to you real quick because it's important. In Greek, worthy has the idea of equal weight. Conduct and calling are to balance in weight. The aorist is constantive and includes the entire walk of the Ephesians. Viewed as a whole, it's to have the mark of worthiness. More is implied than likeness between calling and conduct, namely also corresponding weight and value. Now when we get into situations where we talk about weight and value, we're talking about areas of worship in life. Because when we talk about worship, we're talking about worth-ship and whether God is worth worshiping. That's what we talk about when we talk about worship. What is he saying in this quote? Paul used this specific Greek adverb for a reason. He wanted to bring out the idea of if Ephesians 1 through 3 are all these incredible blessings and grace that you have in Christ, then see to it that you live in those blessings in such a way as to where you are seeking to balance the scales, not because you're trying harder and doing better, but because you're letting Christ exhibit all of these gracious things from the first three chapters in all of the areas of the last three chapters. Does that make sense? It's an idea of having scales and weights involved. It's not just, you better be a good person. Guys, let's come to the fact we can't be good people. Let's begin our prayers that way. Lord, I can't be a good person. It's not in us to do so. Because anytime we're trying to operate apart from the grace of God, chapters 1 through 3, we find failure leading us back to Romans chapter 7. The things I want to do, I'm not doing. And the things I don't want to do, I can't seem to do. What's wrong with me? Well, you're paranoid schizophrenic, that's why. No! You've got a spiritual battle of conflict coming against you and we're not living in the light of the truth of what it is to abide in Christ. That's the problem. It's not that you're crazy. It's that we haven't gotten rid of the worldliness because the Word is not washing our minds and hearts. We have an abundance to live in. Are you living in it? Paul urges us, please, at all costs, regardless of what you have to give up to be there, live a life, walk, conduct yourself in a way that wants to bring, bring balance to the scales of grace. And get this idea of, well, I need to do this, well, I need to start doing this. Get that out of your mind. The reason why he starts with three chapters of knowing is so that serves for the fuel for doing so often we're trying to light a fire and the wood's not there. Put the wood in the fireplace and fire it up. You've got to get that in there. We have to know. We have to have the substance before we ever display it. And that's what he's going for here. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, what hurts us is that he's going to give us examples of what this looks like. Because now we start to be without excuse. Well, yeah, I'll just walk in grace. And it seems so nebulous and so like nailing jello to a wall. It's not. He wants to put feet on it. So now, here's what's really cool. Emily is a master at making designs. If you wouldn't mind, uh, bring this up. 
Here it is. I scribbled this on a piece of paper. She made it look awesome. The grace of chapters 1 through 3 have a bearing of which they flow out into a worthy walk. And he gives us seven things here in this starting part that are incredibly important for us to look at. We're going to hit every one of them. But humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love, unity, and peace. Here's what we need to understand about these. None of these things can be accomplished from a worldly perspective. None. Every one of these things are supernatural. Therefore, you need the Spirit, which you already have, and to walk in the grace with the mindset of grace that's already been given to you in order for these things to manifest themselves in how you just live daily life. Because here's what we do. Yeah, I need to be more humble. Yeah, yeah. We all become Eeyore Christians. How's your walk with the Lord go? Well, it could be better. You know? How's your gentleness with people? Well, it wasn't too nice as such. We sound like Eeyore every time people ask us. Guess what? We're not Eeyores. We're Tiggers. Let's be honest. We're Tiggers of grace, man. We are. And all of these things are possible, not because I'm trying to make it a reality, but because it's what God wants to do in and through us. So now let's see how he unfolds this real quick. Verse 2, with all, I'm going to ask you this question again. What's the word all mean? All. All. With all humility, every bit of it. How do I walk worthy of the calling of which I've been called? Humility is the first thing. In other words, others. See, the opposite of humility is pride and selfishness. It's real easy to think of ourselves. Why? We play for our team. We love us. We're flying our flag. We're wearing our jersey. Touchdown us. Go us. Yay. We love us. Humility calls for us to look beyond us. It's called lowliness of mind. And it can only be accomplished supernaturally. Here's a question. Why would we be humble? I mean, let's be honest. Isn't being humble pretty inconvenient? Is it not? I want this. But it'd be so much better to do this for somebody else. Hmm. I don't know if my schedule's going to allow for that. Guilty as charged, man. Guilty as charged. And I stopped to ask, how convenient was the cross? How convenient was it for the body of Jesus to lie in a borrowed tomb? I mean, if anything, you're just hoping that the guy it belonged to didn't die within that three-day span, right? Jesus is going to have to move over or find someplace else. That's strange. Humility. We often think that we deserve better. We often think that we deserve more. We often think we deserve whatever we want because it's what we want it and we want it now. Hey, at least Jim Morrison was honest, right? We want the world and we want it now. That's what I love about pagan rockers. They're at least honest. Making no bones about it. And sometimes we find out that that attitude has permeated the church. If we wonder why we can't tell the church different from the world, it's probably because we're not living in the grace that God's given us and humility is not the leading factor. I don't think it's any coincidence that Paul led with humility. Humility is the first thing. 
recognizing your relationship, especially to other believers in Christ. If we were in Philippians 2, I'd tell you to look around and say, you know what, everyone around us better than ourselves. That's the attitude of Christ. That's the reality of it. How about the second one here? Gentleness. Some of your translations might have the term meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Somebody said, if you think that meekness is weakness, try being meek for a week. It's not. It's actually strength. It's actually composure. It is the opposite of revenge and retaliation. When we find that our tongues want to slander somebody pretty quickly, that we're quick to do that, we find that meekness is a better route. It's the idea of being self-controlled. I even wrote notes here I can't even read. But it's looking beyond self-importance. Recognizing the way that we approach other people. Listen to this. Compassion is always a good way. To be compassionate. In this room, we have a myriad of problems we're all struggling with that some people may never see. Compassion is always preferred option. You can't do that apart from the Spirit. You cannot be truly compassionate with somebody apart from the Spirit. Just like you can't be humble apart from the Spirit, you cannot be gentle apart from the Spirit. Because that humility will always have, well, what am I going to get on the tail end of this? Gentleness will always, well, maybe if I'm nice, they'll do something for me. Worldly ways is always about what we will get. This is why Paul spends three chapters saying, this is what you already have. You don't need anything else. Therefore, there's nothing else to prove. It's all about how I, can I give to others because of what Jesus has given to me. How about the next one with patience? Ooh, patience. You ever heard that? Don't pray for patience. I'm going to tell you, don't pray for patience because it's not biblical. Praying for patience is an unbiblical approach because patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not that we need to pray for patience. We already have complete and perfect patience in the Spirit, in Christ. He's already locked it up. It's my failure to walk in the Spirit that prevents me from being able to have patience with people. This is also known, some of your translations might say, long-suffering. That tends to really get the ball rolling a little bit more in our minds. It's the idea that when we're wronged, we don't need to take up irritation or complaint. Instead, we can remain tranquil. That's hard, isn't it? Sometimes you desire the best for people so bad that when they don't do it, you just want to grab them by the throat and smack them, don't you? Let's just be honest. And we know that comes from the world. That's the world's way of dealing with it. It's a tragic thing to see when believers won't live for Christ. Patience is the goal. It's supernatural. The world doesn't have it. How about showing tolerance? Immediately, this is the idea, our 21st century mindset. We just need to be accepting of everybody and love everybody. All colors bleed into one. Thank you, Bono. No. It's not what it is. In fact, if you have a different translation than what it says tolerance, what do you have? Tell me. Bearing what? Bearing one with another? Anybody got enduring? Enduring with one. That means sticking with it. It's the whole idea here of forbearance, to bear with one another in an endurance. Now think about what we've looked at so far. Four things. Humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerance. Do you think that the body of Christ needs to be flexible? 
Good grief. Rigid Christians aren't going to make it on this one. It's got to be my way or no way. That's not the spirit. That's the world. What is it to show tolerance? To show endurance with somebody? In fact, it would go as far as to say, you know what, I may not agree with you as my brother or sister in Christ, but I'm willing to stick alongside you through it. I'm willing to lock arms with you through it. Unless it's sin, then it needs to be called out and repented of. But somebody might have a different point of view on something. You know what? I'm not somebody who believes in, in speaking in tongues, neither does a doctrinal statement of this church. But I can definitely hang out with some tongue speakers because they're, they're beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. doesn't bother me in the slightest. Are we willing to look past people's shortcomings and have grace towards them so that we can demonstrate tolerance? Notice, tolerance for one another, believers, not unbelievers. You mean I'm not supposed to be tolerant of unbelievers? No. Have you noticed that that's the world's philosophy that they're trying to pigeonhole us into and paint us in a corner? You have to be tolerant of everyone. No, you're sinning. It's wrong. Your desires put Christ on the cross. It's sin. Call it what it is. Let's stop being bashful. I don't want to offend anybody. Everybody doesn't love you. Jesus loves you perfectly. You're always going to have enemies. In fact, we're told by Paul, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution in Christ Jesus. If we can't handle the name calling, we'll never handle the chains. We'll never handle the false accusations and public ridicule. You don't think it's coming? Let's not be foolish, church. We're to show tolerance for one another in, oh man. In fact, on my little piece of paper that I have here, I just drew a big old red heart. What's the word, church? Love. What kind of love? Agape love. What is agape love? Agape love is love that chooses its object. It's not just a bro- we're brothers in Christ. It's not just that love. It goes beyond that saying, I am choosing to be fully invested, which means that your will is involved and your mind has had to be corrected by sound doctrine. I am choosing you as the object of my deep, in- deep, not infection, <laughs> affection. Now let's be honest. Is that not supernatural? Have you hung out with believers before? So you guys don't think that's funny because you know I'm talking about you. And you know what? I know you're thinking about me. But in the spirit, every single person in the body of Christ is lovable. Because Because in the spirit, you're not worried about whether or not the person deserves to be loved. How crazy is that we do that? You know what? They've been coming to Sunday school the past two weeks. I think it's time to take that step towards loving them. Who in the world gave us the ability to make that call? Good grief. But we think like that, don't we? No, not me, Pastor. Liar. We do think that way. But what you find is when we're rooted in the grace, 
of embracing all that Jesus has done for us and we have nothing to prove, then all of a sudden we love them just because they're the recipients of the same amount of grace that we are. All of those things that we mentioned, those 52 things, every single person in this room who's a believer in Christ has those. It's not that I have 52, you have 51, you have 49, you're 30, you know. Not like that at all. It's fully all of them. How about this, verse 3, being diligent. You know what that means? Get after it. Being diligent about what? Being diligent to preserve, to guard, to watch over, to keep it, to put practical means on it, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word bond is the idea that the ligaments that make your bones flexible and hold them all together. Describing us as a body. That we are to be diligent, hungry for it, doing everything we can for unity's sake. Unity is already a reality in what Christ has done, positionally speaking. Practically, He's calling for us to make it a reality. He's calling for all of us to be one as He and the Father are one. But notice it's in something. Not only is the unity supernatural, what's the last thing there? What is it? Peace. Let's say it together. Peace. There we go. Now, if you think back to last week, didn't we see that Jesus is our peace? Didn't we see that He's given us peace? Doesn't we see that He preaches to us peace? Peace is a pretty big deal with Jesus. About having this harmonious body. We're a family. We're brothers and sisters. And we are to have peace, and we're to strive after peace. That means you got an issue with your brother and sister in Christ, you go and you talk to them privately about it, and you get it resolved according to the Word of God. Because you're striving, you're being diligent to go after unity and peace. Now, here's something interesting that Paul does. He wants to give you a reason why this needs to happen. So verses 4, 5, 6, look what he does. There's one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What in the world is he saying? He's saying everything that has to do with God's end and how God does things is all unified. In fact, it may, it may be made up of different factors and different components, but it forms a one unified whole. We believe in the Trinity, right? Four through six tells us the Trinity. One Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. See that? Are they one? They are one. So notice, it doesn't matter how many of us there are. It doesn't matter how diverse we are. It doesn't matter from what walk of life we come from. All of those things provide equal ground in Christ. What matters is that we're striving after one because this is how God operates. He operates in unity. Now, for those of you that are Bible nerds, let me give this to you real quick and then I will wrap it up. Everybody see verse 4, one body? You want to put an A there. And the reason is the letter A because that is the one new man that he talked about in chapter 2. Everybody see one spirit? That's the Holy Spirit. Put a B there. 
Just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, put C there. In other words, the one hope of our calling is living out the manifold grace of God as He's given us because we're the church. In fact, the grace that is shown to, our, to us as believers in Christ, it actually elevates all of us to a common ground. That's what the church is. It's a gracious, elevated, common ground of which we all stand equals in Christ. Equal benefits, equal blessings, equal love, all of it's freely accessible to every one of us. Remember, we don't have a hundred different Holy Spirits. We have one Holy Spirit indwelling all of us. How about looking at verse 5? Put a D next to this one. One Lord, who's that? Jesus Christ. One faith, everybody see that? Put C, apostrophe. C, sorry, C, put an apostrophe next to it. One faith, it's personal faith in Christ. One baptism, there's B, apostrophe. Verse 6, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. That's A, apostrophe. This baptism here is speaking of spirit baptism. We know this because this is what's known as a chiasm. And it's been set up in such a way as to where the pieces on each side correspond with one another. It's almost like if you took something like this and unfolded it, and you find it has one uniform point. And when it culminates in that middle uniform point, it's the point that he really wants us to get. Not only do we have one faith and one baptism, and there's one spirit and there's one God, we have one Lord. And when he uses the word Lord, it is not used lightly. You have one that is so died for you. And so orchestrated existence ahead of time for you that he's abundantly supplied you and called you to attitudes that will exhibit his life based out of the grace that he freely provides in order to balance the scales. Now you might sit here and say, I don't know that I can live that life. You're on the right track. Because you can't. We cannot live that life. But we have one inside of us that can. And the greatest thing that we can do is ask the Lord, search me and try my heart and show me if there's any unclean way in me. Because I guarantee you this, usually the unclean way that is in me is me. I'm often in the path of grace serving as a damn that is preventing it from gushing forward. Notice that humility gets me out of the way. And gentleness gets me out of the way. And forbearing with one another gets me out of the way. And patience gets me out of the way. And love that is selfless gets me out of the way. And striving for unity for all of us, that gets me out of the way. And desiring for peace. As long as I'm in the way, there's no peace. I am a trifling fool. My life needs peace. Jesus died and provided that peace. I already have peace. My problem is I don't access that peace. Let that be our prayer. God, show me ways that I'm preventing your already grace. Call it that. It's fun to say. Your already grace from flowing through me so that you have to take notice of what the Spirit's doing. Now pause for a second. Close your eyes. I'm not going to throw anything. But I want you to get a mental picture without distraction. Think of it for just a second. What would a church look like 
if our earnest heart's desire to God was, God, show me where I need to bow out so that grace can be more abundant through me. It's already there. It's already waiting to come forward. You've lavished it on me. How do I need to step out of your way? Now imagine what your life would look like if it's just freely flowing grace all the time. That's the life of Christ. Let's pray. Father, all that we have that can be used for your glory is from you. All that we are that matters in your sight is from you. And all that you desire to do with us is good and pleasing and perfect. It's perfect. It's of grace. Father, how wonderful it is to know that you, the Master, desire to work with broken people. Father, help us to not fool ourselves in thinking that we've got it all together. Forgive us of the objections that we raise as an excuse to disobey you. Forgive us of our reasonings and rationalizations to where we've pretty much said your word has no bearing here. Thank you that the scriptures are sufficient. Thank you that your son is perfect. And thank you that you love us, have lavished grace on us, and desire to work with us every day walking intimately with us. Father, I pray this Father's Day we celebrate you, our great, perfect, amazing Heavenly Father. Thank you for loving us. We pray it in your Son's name. Amen.